This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Well, welcome and good morning. I should go ahead and grab a Bible and uh, turn to Luke chapter 8. Um, there should be some Bibles underneath the, the seats in front of you. Find Luke chapter 8. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and um, thrilled, really, really excited to have this time with you. Glad you're here. Uh, we're jumping into um, our 34th week now into our journey and our study through this book, the book of Luke uh, series that we've entitled The Real Jesus. I want to establish a little bit of context for us, for those who are new, uh, myself actually just being freshly back after several weeks of uh, sabbatical during the summer, a gift from the church to my family and I, and really appreciate that. Um, so we need some context. I need some context. So recently here in chapters seven and eight, uh, mainly eight, we've seen Jesus here uh, go against the cultural movement of his day and deeply appreciate, acknowledge, and care for women. Uh, women were all around Jesus. They were following him. There were dozens and dozens of ladies who were following Jesus that were his disciples, part of his uh, Talmud, um, his group of disciples. And then we noticed how Jesus began teaching in parables, these short stories used to illustrate a moral truth or a spiritual lesson. He begins teaching his followers about these parables and teaching them principles through his parables. Now, one in particular, earlier in Luke chapter 8, where we're working here in this chapter, uh, was the parable of the sower or the parable of the soil types. You might remember that if you were with us this summer. It's there that Jesus points out just how important it is, how truly necessary it is uh, to hear Jesus, to truly hear Jesus, and understand his teachings. I need you to remember that, kind of remember the context that this is what's going on in the room with Jesus in this house, in this building where he's teaching. He says in Luke chapter 8, verse 15, you can find it there. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. They hear the word, they hold it fast. They hold it with honest and good hearts, humble hearts before the Lord. And they're in it for the long haul. You see, they're patiently bearing fruit. And the result of them cherishing the word, which is true for all of us who cherish the word, they begin to bear good fruit. But then using another parable in chapter 8, verse 18, of the lighting a candle and then hiding it, Jesus says once more, take care then how you hear. Again, remember this for our time today. So it's in this context of be very careful how you hear, that we have verse 19, 20, and 21, where we're going to be hanging out. Um, So direct your attention to Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, and they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, and they're desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So Jesus is teaching, right? There's crowds gathering all around Jesus, almost everywhere he goes. Many follow simply because it's a crowd. We know that a crowd 
draws a crowd. Like, what's going on? I need to see what's happening here in town. But also, many follow because they, they've heard that there's a miracle worker. They've heard that there's this great teacher, one who, in fact, astonishes. We get that word multiple times through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and their accounts of Jesus, that this teacher causes the most religious elite and advanced in all of the town to marvel in their astonishment of just how he teaches with authority. It's crazy. So many draw in for this. Many follow because they have needs to be met. They have illnesses to be addressed. They have sicknesses that need to be cured. Well, many follow Jesus because they've already been changed and healed by Jesus, and they simply can't get enough of this guy. He has changed their life, and they love him for it. But many follow because they're skeptical. They don't much care for this man who is so revolutionary, who's so bold. And so some of, some of this crowd, they're actually over it, and they're wanting to get Jesus locked up and locked down. They're trying to find a way that he's messing up so they can now take him uh, to judgment, to a hearing. Well, many follow for all sorts of reasons, different reasons, and this crowd begins to draw a crowd and continues to grow. And everywhere Jesus goes, there's this tremendous amount of people who want to see him. They, they want to hear Jesus. They want to touch him. They, they want to be seen by him, perhaps even changed by Jesus. I wonder if I get close enough, if I could get his attention, what would he say to me? How could he help me? What about you? What is it about Jesus that draws you here today to this warehouse? Have you thought about that? I hope it's not merely to check out a new church or a different church. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not bad. I just hope that there's more to it than that. I hope that you showed up in this place for something more. What brings you here? What is it that you're looking for? What is it? And where does this desire for Jesus come from? Friend, if you're pursuing Jesus or even just beginning to pursue Jesus just a little bit, or if you're just now giving him another chance after years and years of apathy, I want you to know this, y'all. Jesus has been pursuing you. And you're here today because he's been pursuing you long before today when you came to downtown Nashville and walked through the doors of a random warehouse. He's interested in you. He cares for you. He wants to love you, and he wants to prove his love to you, and he likes you. He wants to redefine what love is in your understanding of it. He wants to deepen it. Well, these people, they gather in and around Jesus, hopefully like we're doing today, and they want to learn something from him. They want to understand something. They want to see him in some way, and his family wants to see him too. You know, it's not like it used to be back in Nazareth where Jesus is from when he began his earthly uh, public ministry. You see, he was a carpenter. His stepdad was a carpenter. And people would seek out Joseph and his stepson, Jesus, in order to get a table, in order to get some chairs, in order to get some furniture. But it's never like it is today. There were no crowds like this that we see in this text. You see, Jesus' family wanted to see him. They, they, they wanted to enter this house or building where he was teaching. They, they're trying to get in, but the crowd's just so dense, so many people, it's so full, and all of them insisting on keeping their place in the crowd. Right? We've been in concerts where you try to like not let anyone in front of you, right? 
It's like you're almost like you forget that they're people and you forget that you're a Christian and you become this like, I'm, I'm standing here and you're behind me. I was here first. And then we've all got that friend who just insists on letting everyone in front of them. And you're like, no, we got here early. Like, you can't do this, right? We used to call it fronting when somebody get in front of you. Anybody remember fronting being a word used? Or is that just Brightwood Elementary in Greensboro, North Carolina? Okay. It's like, man, don't front me. Not... This crowd on this day not wanting anyone to, to make their way in front or creep in uh, to cut line. There you go, to cut in line. That's probably what you commoners used to call it. <laughs> so word gets to Jesus that his, his family's near, and he's told this by the messenger, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Okay, so in Mark chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 13, we learn James, Joseph, perhaps Joseph Jr., Jude and Simon were the younger brothers of Jesus. These were all sons of Mary and Joseph. And the same verses, we also learn that Jesus had sisters. They're unnamed, but he had sisters. So Jesus and his mother, Mary, and his brothers, perhaps sisters too that just aren't mentioned in the text, they made their way to see Jesus. Now, I don't know the reasons why, but Luke records this as they simply wanted to see Jesus. But I want you to know this, that Jesus isn't simply a son of Mary, though he is. You see, Jesus is also the son of God. He's not merely a man. Jesus is the God-man. And Colossians 1.29 tells us, for in him, in Christ, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, the whole fullness of God dwells in bodily form, in the flesh. Lean in with me here. Okay, so Jesus has two natures. He's God and man. Each nature is full and complete. He's fully God. He's fully man. Each nature remains distinct, yet Jesus is only one person. Things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Jesus Christ. You see, like the rest of mankind, Jesus hungered, and like the rest of mankind, Jesus died. But unlike the rest of mankind, Titus 2.13 points out that Jesus, Jesus is our great God and our Savior. He's our God. Like Thomas rightly understood in John 20, 28, following the resurrection of Jesus, when he saw him in bodily form after he beat death, he says, Jesus is Lord and God. And then John writes of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 18, that Jesus is the only begotten God, the only God born in the flesh. You see, Jesus knows everything. Jesus is everywhere. Jesus has all power. Jesus depends on nothing outside of himself for life. He rules over everything. Jesus never began to exist, and he will never cease to exist. Jesus is our creator. In other words, everything that God is, Jesus is because Jesus is God. Well, Christians are those who worship the triune God of the Bible. Triune, prefix, tri, T-R-I, meaning three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is the trinity of the Christian's faith. And I encourage you to receive this doctrine, believe this doctrine, love this doctrine, learn to look for it in scripture, listen for it in prayers and in good songs. The doctrine of the Trinity states that God, that God is one being and that this one being exists in three distinct persons. Now, what this means is that we must distinguish each person of the Trinity from the other two. You see, the Father is not the Son, nor 
the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit nor the Father, and the Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. They are each a distinct form of a personal existence, yet they, are, they all share the exact same divine nature and essence. Therefore, the three persons are one being, the triune God. So the divine being, the divine essence is something that's, that's it's not something that's divided amongst the three as if one gets a third, the other gets a third, the other gets a third, and they're all combined, they're one-thirds, and they become a three-thirds, they become a whole God. Rather, the divine being is fully and equally owned and possessed possessed by all three persons, such that all three persons are fully and equally God. So which person showed up as Jesus took on human form? All three? Just one? Which one? Well, the biblical answer is that only God the Son became incarnate. Okay, this means he took on flesh. Only Jesus took on flesh. Jesus is God, but he's not the Father, and he's not the Holy Spirit. He's God the Son in the flesh. Now, I want you to take note to listen to this carefully in John chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1 and picking up again in verse 14. John 1, starting in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. So in the beginning, a long, long time ago, Genesis 1 type of stuff, was the Word. The Word is speaking of Jesus. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, all right? So with, not the same, but they were with God, and the Word actually at the same time was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not made anything that was made. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And Jesus the Word became flesh, Christmas, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, and he dwelt among us. What a precious, humbling phrase that is. He actually rubbed elbows with us. He lived here. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So dynamic and complex. No one has ever been like Jesus. Full of grace, full of truth. Both. You see, the difference between Jesus and his earthly siblings isn't the mother, Mary. They shared this in common. The difference is the Father. His siblings knew Joseph as their daddy. Jesus knew him as his stepdad. Jesus, as God in the flesh, he knew God, the heavenly father, as his father. So what we see here in this text is a picture of Jesus' full humanity in that he had an earthly family, but we also see here that Jesus is also fully God and not just fully man because he had a heavenly and eternal family. There was never a time when Jesus became God because God is eternal. But Jesus hasn't always been man. And the fantastic miracle is that the eternal God, he became man roughly 2,000 years ago. And this, again, is what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation where God took on flesh. Jesus took on flesh. The God, the Son, became man. And I'm not saying that Jesus turned into a man in the sense that he stopped being God and then started being man 2,000 years ago. This is not what I'm saying. Jesus didn't give up his divinity when he became a man. Rather, Athanasius, an old church father, helped me with this. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. In other words, Jesus wasn't, when he, kept, when he came and stepped into the flesh, Jesus wasn't God minus some of his deity. It was Jesus 
plus, as God, plus manhood. He was fully God plus manhood, not God minus deity and his divine attributes, but Jesus is God plus his manhood. He didn't give up his divine attributes, any of them, when he took on human flesh. He remained in full possession of all of them. If he were to give up any of his divine attributes, then he would cease to be God, and we don't want that to happen. He is our hope. And we see this humanity of Jesus played out in Scripture, all throughout Scripture. I mean, he was born. He was born of a baby. He was born to a human mother. He had brothers and sisters. He became tired and weary. He was thirsty. He was hungry. He would often remove himself from crowds and be alone. And all the introverts in the house said, amen, right? And Jesus slept and took naps. All the lazy people in that, no, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> and he experienced a full range of emotions such as marveling, astonishing, sorrow, and then even in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see him experiencing anxiety. You see, Jesus lived on the earth just as we do. So this early family of Jesus is desiring to see him. Jesus, the God-man, the complex God-man, the hero of all heroes. He learns of this, and he says back to the messenger, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Be reminded of context here. Remember at the beginning of our time, I wanted you to hold on to a couple thoughts in chapter eight that we've been working through. Remember, Jesus is telling them through parables and direct teaching that they must hear, that they must truly hear, right? Well, taken at face value, his response to his mother and brothers, his family seems a bit odd, but I want you to look deeper and be reminded that Jesus is in the midst of teaching. He's in the middle of teaching. He knows his family's coming to see him. He's God. He's not taken off guard by this ever for anything. He knows that they want to see him and he understands this, but Jesus also knows that he has to get their attention. He's not too concerned with the attention of his family. He wants to get the attention of the crowd that's now leaning into his teaching. They're learning. He's trying to get their attention. His family desires his attention, but he's trying to get the crowd's attention. His family wants to receive him for, I don't know, supper, a question, I don't know. But Jesus desires that the crowd receive accurately and fully what it is that he's teaching them on this day so that they might become part of his eternal family, so that the listeners would become part of his heavenly family. So the messenger gets the attention of Jesus and announces that his family is near. And he says, my family are those who hear the word of God and do it. So taken in context, I see that statement. My mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. I see this statement taken in full context as the exclamation point on his parables up to this point. That this is the point. You hear the word of God and do it. This is how you're in. Now, there's a lot, there's a lot here. Radical implication. This is loaded. You see, there's a way to be united with Jesus as family, even though we don't have the same mother. In other words, we can be adopted into the family of Jesus. Literally, we can be adopted and brought into the family of God. Not merely and simply welcomed to a church congregation where we can become friends with one another and help one another, but truly and fully and completely welcomed into the literal and eternal family of God forever. That's crazy. This is over-the-top, absurd, ridiculous, this, this is radical. 
The fact that I can get up here and, and tell a group of sinners, me, myself included, that we can be in relationship with God to the point that we, y'all, are considered family. That's crazy. That's radical. And that, sh that shouldn't make sense. No theologian should ever say this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. There's a whole new category for this, and it's, it's grace upon grace. It's radical grace. It's absurd grace. It's, it, it's not just mercy. It's not just love. It's like, it's, it's absurd, almost some sort of reckless, haphazard sort of love to let us back into this family of God, something we don't deserve, something that we're disqualified from, and we can be invited. I just told y'all that you could be invited into the family of God. That is crazy. Please don't ever let that become normal. Every time you hear that, you gotta be like, I don't know, let's pump the brakes. Let's hear that one more time. That is, it's bizarre. Where we can have Jesus as our perfect big brother. You ever, you ever wanted to have somebody stand up for you? You ever had, wanted somebody to stick up for you? We all have. We've all experienced horrible things. Where man, if we just had a protector, if we had a, a perfect good brother, that wouldn't have happened this way. Y'all, Jesus is this perfect brother that we're looking for. You ever wanted a dad? Some of us had great dads. Some of us had absent dads. Some of us had terrible dads. They're all around. I don't know. But you ever wanted to have a perfect father always respond perfectly? Give some grace to your earthly fathers and place your hope not in them but in your perfect heavenly father who knows what you need and who can deeply comfort you. He is the perfect father. And I'm telling you, you can be invited into this family unit where Jesus is your brother, for crying out loud, and God is your daddy. Man, this is good news. And they're both full of truth, but not just truth. They're also full of grace, but not just grace. Full of grace and truth. That's our brother. That's our dad. And they both know us completely. Get this. You're, the family that you're a part of, they know you fully, and they love you completely and they protect you, and they care for you, and in spite of knowing every little detail about you, they fully receive you, and they like you. You see, this is most magnificent, mainly because through our sin, we have disqualified our opportunity to be in a relationship with God. That's why I'm saying it's bizarre. You see, if we think we're pretty good people, then the love of God and being accepted in his family kind of makes sense, because we're pretty cool people. Like, we're good, right? But if you start out that we're sinners and enemies, disqualifying our chance of being in that relationship, let alone being brought in as family, now that's when it tends to get a little bit more radical. It becomes a little bit more magnificent, marvelous, and amazing. We've disqualified this chance, our sin, and all of us are unfortunately, we're tremendous sinners. And this sin separates us from God. And through our sin, we've essentially cut our ties from the family of God. We've blatantly rebelled against God. We, through our sin, we have chosen to be orphaned. We've chosen to be exiled. We've chosen to be separated from him because of our rebel. We're such rebels to God in his way. Romans 3, from our reading, our Access Daily reading on Thursday from this past week, says this, Romans 3, starting in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And friend, unfortunately, you're not the exception to this truth. 
we're all in this together. And to make matters a little bit more worse, I guess, is there's, there's nothing in any of us that ever desires God. No one seeks for God. Now, either that's true or it's false. The Bible says no one seeks for God. Well, the only way that any of us would ever search for him and seek for him in this way is if God first places this desire in us. And this is because we're such strong rebels. This is because we're such proud rebels. This is mainly because the curse rests so heavily upon each and every one of us. But the gospel story isn't over there in Romans 3. Let's continue, starting in verse 22. For there is no distinction. There's no difference here. All of us have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God, this perfection that's required, this righteousness that's required to be in his family. And check this out. We are justified. We are declared righteous by God, by his grace. And this comes as a gift. How? through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, as a wrath absorber. Someone, in other words, who would take the whooping that you deserved, take the judgment that you deserve for your sin. He took it for you in your place. He absorbed all the wrath of God in your place. And this is to be received by trust, hope, and the text says here, by faith. And the point of Jesus that he's making here, Martin Luther understood it and phrased it this way, that we're saved by this faith alone. But the faith that saves is never just alone. Hear and do. Hear and obey. You see, if you're in the family of God, if you've been regenerated by the power of God, if you've been, if you've been regenerated by the Spirit of God, then you believe Jesus Christ to be your propitiation, your wrath absorber. You believe him to be your redeemer, your rescuer, your savior, your Lord. You've been saved then. You've been saved by the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ. And there's simply no other way to God. There's no other entrance into God's family. There's no other way of being regenerated, made alive, made new in Christ. There is no other way. We are made righteous. We are justified by faith alone. And Jesus tells us that for those who've been made righteous by faith in him, that this change will be obvious through two particular and essential practices. He says it here in the text. This sort of proof of your adoption into God's family comes through two ways. One, you seek to hear the word of God, to truly hear the word of God, and two, to obey the word of God. First, to hear and receive the word of God. Now, you remember back in verse 13 of chapter eight, there are many of those who hear the word, they receive it with joy, but then they fall away. So there's a, there's a sense where hearing isn't enough. But here's what we need, and, and Mark 7 tells us this through a story that happened with Jesus. They brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looked up to heaven, his father, and he sighed and said to him, Ephetah, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he's done all things well, indeed. And he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Friends, now that is what we need. In the deepest parts of who we are, we must hear. But only God can open our ears. Psalm 115 verse 6 puts it, they have ears but do not hear. 
The psalmist says in, in Psalm 28, one, he gets at this when he says, to you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. Don't be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. In other words, I'm hopeless unless you open my ears. And Deuteronomy 29.4 also speaks to the sovereignty of God in our true hearing from God. But the good news is that God can open our ears to him. Psalm 40, verse 6, you have, uh, my ears you have opened. And then Jesus affirms this in Matthew 13, 16. Blessed are your eyes because they see. Blessed are your ears because they hear. You see, in addition to this hearing, Jesus says that, that, we, that we must hear it, get it, and understand it to the point that obedience begins to come forth, begins to usher forth. All my life, I feel like I've known this phrase, that to truly learn something is to be able to then go and do it. That's proof that you know it, if you can do it. Jesus says, those in my family are those who hear the word of God and do it. So secondly, the second proof that you've been adopted that Jesus uses here in this portion of scripture and his teaching is they obey the word of God. Now, I understand this to be the main idea of Jesus in this text. He's simply yet profoundly echoing what he has just taught in Luke 8, 15 that we read earlier. The good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast and honest and good heart and they bear fruit with patience. This bearing fruit is obedience. Now family, here's where we must be very careful. We have to be oh so very careful with this because there's a hearing that's not truly hearing but there's a hearing that's a hearing only where you, gain, uh, you merely gain knowledge and you don't let it have its full effect, its full impact on you. You don't let it play out in the Christian obedience and character that ushers from the heart. And I've, I've heard since my youth that for many in the church, they miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance between your brain and your, your heart. In this sense, you can have a form of godliness intellectually, a form of Christianity intellectually, and yet not be a Christian not be in the family of God. Second Timothy chapter three, verse four and five, Paul warns the early church of this sort of thing. He says, now there's, there's gonna come a day when people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We're, we're there, by the way. And then having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. We can appear to be godly. We can appear to be Christian and yet not be regenerated, saved and made new. Please don't be thinking of somebody else right now. That's not truly hearing what I'm saying. That's sort of illustrating what Jesus is getting at, to be honest. You see, we can appear to hear and be deaf. We can pretend to see, but we're merely deceiving ourselves. And here is where the Christian church in America is suffering tremendously. We mustn't merely gain more knowledge. We have more knowledge at our fingertips than any other generation ever. Yet at the same time, it's hard to imagine a generation of professing Christians who fail to submit to God's word and obey it. I understand our culture often rejects the idea of God, rejects the idea of God's word being truth, that there is, in fact, any truth. 
This is very concerning and it's deeply troubling, especially when it begins to seep into the church. For many, even in this room, I understand that through practice, our feelings and our freedoms seem to be chief. They're what determines our actions. If it feels good, it must be right. If it's good for me, it must be true. You do what's good for you, I do what's good for me, we'll be all right. Nothing could be further from the truth found in Scripture. Scripture has to be the authority, or it's not Christian. You're not Christian. To be Christian is to submit to Scripture. So we've got to be very careful here. We've got to be very careful. It's not in knowing more, I don't believe, that's going to lead us to where we need to be, but doing more with what we already know and believing more of what we already know. You see, many of us have, have heard, but we've stopped right there. But there's more to it than just hearing. There's more to it than being able to regurgitate the correct answers. There's more to it than just playing out Christian activities and habits and gatherings. There's got to be something more to it. There is something more to it. It's what it means to be part of the family of God. And I want this to stick. I want this to stick that there's something more than knowing more. There's something to the Christian life. There's something about being in the family of God more than just knowing the right answer and having just beautiful, robust doctrine. There's something more to this. You can have robust doctrine and go to hell. You can have the most perfect doctrine that would, that would just cause Martin Luther to stand and clap. John Calvin would be like, yeah, that's what, I, that's what I've been trying to say all these years and go to hell. You can know the right answers and not be in the family of God. I remember growing up with the cartoon G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. Anybody remember that cartoon? <laughs> My family. All right. Well, at the end of each 30-minute episode, much like all good cartoons meaning the cartoons of the 70s and 80s, there would be a 30-second lesson where the characters would teach the television audience a lesson, a sort of a public service announcement, like what to do if your friend falls out of a tree and is unconscious. Does your cartoons, millennials, did they teach you what to do with that? <laughs> hmm, they did us. Um, <clears throat> what to do if... You want a snack. What's a healthy snack? Like they, every, after every episode of so many cartoons, they would teach you a lesson. Well, following the lesson, the G.I. Joe character would say that knowing is half the battle. Well done. Let's get our G.I. Joes, go to a tree somewhere, and play in the dirt under the tree. Um, well, I want us to look at this, all right? For many of you all, you're about to have your mind blown, okay? This is what cartoons used to be. Let's roll this. Let's check this out. Is your mom there? No, I'm home alone. Well, you won a prize. What's your address? Uh, 42 Oak Street. Hey, Roblox, some stranger's bringing me a prize. A stranger, huh? All he wanted to bring you was trouble. Remember, never tell anyone you're home alone and never give anyone your address. I'll say mom can't come to the phone. Smart thinking. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Man, let's go, y'all. That's what I'm talking about right there. Every Saturday, 9.30. I loved G.I. Joe's. 
Man. Wow. <laughs> so I want this to stick. Okay? That's why I did this. All right? I wasn't really thinking about not showing it. But maybe, just maybe, watching this ridiculous <laughs> public service announcement on a 1979 cartoon would make you remember and help you remember of this time together this morning, and it would stick, and it would somehow play out in your actions and your heart. Oddly enough, I think this is what Jesus is stressing here, that knowing is good, but it's half of what's required. It's half of, of what there needs to be there, that you can know, but then doing is different. Knowing is one thing, doing is quite another. And by the way, my entire life, I've been waiting to show a clip of G.I. Joe's on, on stage, and it just happened. So I feel like just taking a bow or something. This is fantastic. Best moment of my life. Well, James warns us about this. Now think of this. What we've just learned through this text in Luke, I want you to think about what James says in chapter 1. James chapter 1, he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Why? This deceives. You're deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres with patience, bearing fruit, right? He perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. Well, Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, which is from our Wednesday reading as a church. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. If God would open our ears, if the Holy Spirit would teach us to obey, if God would do these things in us, for us, along with us, then we could be adopted into the family of Jesus. But hear me, please. Being included in God's family is what we're all looking for. Though many of us in this room may not know this, we may not acknowledge this, we may not feel this or believe this. Though, though many of us in this room don't even want this to be true. I believe that it's, it's scriptural teaching and I believe it through personal practice that we deeply desire hearing that we can be included into a relationship with God. Truly experiencing this adoption personally, hearing that God likes us, hearing that God loves us, hearing that he approves of us, approves of us. Now here's how we hear. Jesus comes to us in the flesh and he lives a perfect life as our representative. He's crucified as us in our place. He's dying as our substitute, absorbing the wrath of God in our place, receiving the punishment for our sin, remember propitiation. And then there on the cross, Jesus cries out to God, but God does not answer. He cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me in this moment of need? It seems like God is deaf to him, but Jesus endures this silence from God so that you never have to, this abandonment so you never have to ever again. Jesus dies for us and then beats death in his glorious resurrection so that we can live with him forever and ever in paradise. And as we simply believe this, the Spirit of God opens our ears and hearts. And as the Spirit of God opens our ears and our hearts, we simply believe this. Well, Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 4 and 5, righteousness before God will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, for you and I to be made right before God. 
Therefore, since we have been justified, made righteous by faith, we have peace with God. All of us want this. All of us desire this peace with God. And this comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now through him, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's more, not just this, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces something. Our suffering isn't pointless because for the Christian, their suffering produces endurance and that endurance then produces character. That character produces hope and this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's been given to us for, this is the gospel in a nutshell, for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for us, the ungodly, the rebels. Now, one would perhaps scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love toward us in that while we're still rebels, hating him, running from him, while we're still sinners, Christ died for that group of people. Not an impressive person, not an impressive group of people, not decent people. Not good people, sinners, rebels. While we were still rebels, he died for us. Well, since therefore we have now been made righteous by his blood, declared righteous and justified, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God that is to come. So what we need, what we truly need is to hear. What we need is the Holy Spirit's presence and power as we pursue obedience, submitting to what God says is best in his word. Friend, this is what we need. May we call out to God today for this. May God grant you faith, saving faith, true faith today. May God help you hear and may he help you believe today and begin living a life for him unlike that you've ever lived before. This is my hope. And now, Christian, it's time for us to remember and celebrate what Jesus has done for us that's allowed us to hear and obey. You see, he's heard and he's obeyed perfectly for us in our place for us, as us, in his time on the earth. And we're going to remember this now through communion, through the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. So Christian, I want you to remember that you were deaf. You were alone and you were separated from God. And you were approaching a godless eternity with no hearing and with no hope. But then God graciously opened your ears and brought life to your heart. He wonderfully and supernaturally brought you from death to life, even eternal life. And he accomplished this for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Friend, believe this. Believe this with everything in you. Run after this with everything in you. This is what we acknowledge when we take the Lord's table, is that this is our hope. Christian, Jesus is your hope. Jesus is your hope. He's the hope of every Christian. May God help us not drift to hope in other things. They will certainly disappoint us every time. Hope in Jesus Christ. But when we do drift to hope in other things, my prayer is that the kindness of Jesus Christ, that the kindness of God and the satisfaction of knowing God as friend and the voice of God being heard and received would bring us carefully through repentance as we learn that he has all it is that we were looking for as we chased that other false hope. You see, through the crucifixion of Jesus, We have forgiveness for our sins. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus that we have hope for eternal life. 
So now as we take communion together, we're not celebrating our work. We're not celebrating our obedience. Rather, we're celebrating the work and the obedience of Jesus Christ. Therein lies our hope. We remember the compassion that Jesus shown us. And we remember the grace of God that he has shown us. And we're humbled by the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, making us new, helping us believe, and bringing us to life. So Christian, this time is for you. This bread and red juice or wine is for you. And for those who aren't Christians yet, perhaps who are becoming Christians right now, friend, <laughs> it's a great joy to say this can be your story. You can receive this today. You can believe Jesus. You can call out to God right now, asking him to open your ears and open your heart and forgive you of your sin, and he will. Ask him for faith. Ask him for belief. Don't disbelieve. Don't disbelieve. Believe and believe Jesus. Believe wholeheartedly the things that you've heard. Well, Christian, this is a special time for you as you remember. As you come and you're gonna take this bread that's symbolic of the life of Christ lived in your place as your representative. You're gonna take the bread and dip it into the juice of the wine based on your age or conscience, this red liquid representing being symbolic of the blood of Christ that he shed for us and his death in our place as he bore the wrath of God that we deserve, that we no longer have to fear as he was our propitiation, our wrath bearer, our wrath absorber. And he died as our substitute. So as you take and dip and taste, I want you to remind yourself the truth of the gospel. Remind yourself of what Jesus has done. Remind yourself that you're cared for and that you're deeply loved. Let me pray for our time. Well, Father, thank you for your help this morning. Lord, thank you for the truths that are found in your word. Lord, thank you for saving us and for continuing to save. Lord, be with those that you're saving now, that you're bringing to faith. Lord, if they've heard the gospel, Lord, they're believing it, they're receiving it, they want to follow you more, Lord, would you, would you convince them of their salvation? Would you, Lord, um, uh, allow them to experience um, the, the uh, realization of what it means to be in relationship with you, to be part of your family once again? That sin has ruined this, but Lord Jesus restored this. Lord, help them believe. Save them, I pray. Lord, be with us as we remember you and acknowledge you and all that you've accomplished for us as we remember this now through communion. Lord, help us hear, help us obey. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.